All right. Good morning again, everybody. Good morning. Turn with me, if you will, for the last time, <laughs> Revelation 13. This is part seven, and I promise you I did not plan it like that. But we are we are in the last um, three verses of Revelation chapter 13 this morning. And I know I've spent quite a bit of time here. One of the takeaways for me, and I hope for you as well, is I've studied this and I think about why this was written to the seven churches. Obviously, it's incredibly important that the church understand the nature of its enemies. That's that's a given. And this is extensive in, in regard to teaching us what we're up against in this world. But I also think there's an aspect that at least has resonated with me that reminds me not to love this place because I can't be comfortable here. And there is a great temptation for us to settle in, to plant deep roots, as we like to say, to make our forever home here. Um, when, when we're looking in the face of the enemy here, there's, there's a reminder, an incredibly important reminder that this is not where we're intended to be. We are just passing through. So Revelation 13, part seven this morning, I want to just give you a quick overview of what we looked at last week. We looked at the, the worshipers and the enemies of the second beast. And as we finish chapter 13 this morning, we'll talk, we'll talk about the mark of the beast or the mark of ownership. You may find it to be underwhelming this morning. But um, I, I believe and I trust um, biblically accurate. But last week, verse 15, we looked at this. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And I wanted to remind us that the word allowed is used in, in verse 15, also in verse 14. John, as he's writing this, reminds the church of the sovereignty of God. The beast does what the beast does because it is wicked. It has evil, nefarious intent. It hates the church. But guess what? It is allowed to do what it does. Who allows it? God does. Why? Because he is sovereign. We looked at 2 Kings 18 this morning in Bible study. Why did God allow Sennacherib to come against Israel? Because he's sovereign. And and uh, there's, it's funny, there's so many overlaps from what we studied this morning. It's not funny. It's, it's, it should be a reminder to us that, that God is superintending our teaching and preaching and that we should listen. The second beast gives breath to the image of the first beast. Again, there's there's imagery here that reminds us of the great counterfeiting that Satan undertakes to impersonate God. There is a regeneration, if you will, of the image of the first beast. It comes to life. The scripture says it speaks. When we think about what it does when it speaks is it's issuing orders of worship to the earth dweller and declares war against the saints. The earth dweller here is substituting the creature for the creator. We spent a great deal of time on this last week. You hear the term in our culture that's thrown around a lot, reimagining. 
all sorts of things are being reimagined in our culture. But what's really happening with the earth dweller here is he's reimagining God and he's re-imaging himself. Man created in the image of God, he's re-imaging himself into the image of the beast. We talked a lot about Genesis last week and the fact that man is created in the image of God. God gives man an order. When he created Adam and Eve, he said what? Be fruitful and multiply. The worship of the beast is unfruitful. I want you to, to look, turn with me, if you will, in, to Ephesians chapter 5. I want to give you one passage in that regard. Satan, in his rebellion to God, is counter to everything God's commanding us to do. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, be imitators of God as beloved children. We talked last week about the fact that we are imaging God as believers. The image of God is restored in us, Romans 8, 29. Hold your finger in Ephesians 5, but Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? Be conformed to the image of his Son. Where we see the image of God marred in humanity at the fall, in the garden when Adam and Eve disobeyed, we see it restored in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as, as Christians, those who bear the name of Christ, he has predetermined and predestined that we would be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, he has predetermined that we will look like his son. We will bear the image of the son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. So in Ephesians 5, Paul says this, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved and gave, loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, he's talking about imitating God here. He says, verse four, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. That, that jumps out at me as, as it, it seems odd, doesn't it? Just like in Romans chapter one that we looked at last week, one of the, the indictments against unbelieving humanity is what? A lack of gratefulness paul he he gives this comparison this this contrast here with those who live to please themselves the sexually immoral the impure the covetous the filthy and foolish talking and he contrasts that with thanksgiving remember what we said last week the essence of worship is what if we are to worship God, it must start where? With thanksgiving. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. 
For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Listen to this, verses 10 and 11. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 11, take no part, you notice that, in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Satan and the fruit of darkness, if you will, that which comes from the worship of the beast is barren. That's the word here. It can produce no offspring other than one thing, which is death. So the worship of the beast is unfruitful. It's Satan's counterfeit, if you will. He promises much, but delivers nothing. But the end of, of, uh, of sin, which is ultimately death. Our application last week was a reminder that we need to examine who and how we are worshiping. Worship extends beyond the four walls of the church in which we gather corporately to worship. It extends to how we live, who and what we obey, what we see, what we hear, what we say, who we are, what we pursue. And we'll talk about that this morning. So this morning, I want to look at verses 16, 17, and 18. Point number five um, is regarding the mark of, of ownership of the beast. We call it the mark of the beast. There are two points under that. A is the totality of ownership, verse 16. B, the totality of worship in verse 17, for those of you who are, that are keeping track. And then lastly, a call for wisdom, the application of wisdom regarding the beast that we have in verse 18. So let's pick up in verse 16. The mark of ownership. So verse 16 says this, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the foreheads so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. There is probably nothing in the book of Revelation that generates more conjecture and conversation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Than this verse, maybe Revelation chapter 20, where um, many, many great men disagree on, on the perspective of the millennial reign. We're a ways away from Revelation 20, though. We'll get to that. But this passage that we're talking about right here is honestly probably one of the most conjectured and speculated passages in all of Scripture. There are people that don't read the Bible that know about this. There are people that don't read the Bible that are experts on this passage. And if I ask you right now, what is the mark of the beast? You can probably give me a whole list of things that you hear all the time as the mark of the beast, can't you? Yes. <laughs> Any and all things technological. Now, we have a love-hate relationship with technology, don't we? Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And technology is a way of not working when you need it to the most. Isn't that ironic? A lot of us, and there are some that are a little more gray-headed than others that could completely do without technology and be perfectly happy. Um, but technology is defined as a systematic implementation of an art, a craft, and work, or a skill for a particular use. 
In other words, technology is a tool, right? What do we do with tools? Well, we use them to accomplish a task or a purpose. A tool can be used for either good or evil. Technology is very much <laughs> like money, isn't it? Money is amoral. Is money evil? I hear people, experts on the Bible all the time saying, money is the root of all evil. Is that what the Bible says? No. The love of money is the root of all evil. But it is a tool that reflects the heart of the user. You can say, you can tell a lot about an individual by what they do with their money. You can also tell a lot about an individual by what they do with technology. But as I spoke about last week, we have two options. And there's a solid litmus test with this particular topic of technology. And it's this, does it promote and advance human flourishing? Or is it promoting or advancing human destruction? It's a very simple litmus test. There's technology that can be used for very good things. One of the things that you'll see with the advancement of AI technology is, is um, use in, in the medical field in identifying disease and or helping with um, the, applica the application of, of medical practice. In, in general principle, that is for human flourishing. There are some examples of technology that are hotly contested though, and there are examples of this. I, I throw a few out at you, Mark just, just uh, named one, a medical implant chip with RFID capability. By the way, this has been proposed by Tony Blair, who's former UK prime minister. You can track your vaccination status and tie it to your freedom to travel. That's what's been proposed about barcoding or QR coding. Mark mentioned that one. Digital ID. That one's been thrown around quite a bit. Central bank digital currency. Also programmable. Artificial intelligence. Transhumanism. You heard that term before? There's technology called embedded brain computer interface. And the intent behind that is to instantly connect you with Google. I don't even need to look it up. I'm connected in there. Plus it goes on. Exactly. I'm connected to just like the Borg in Star Trek. <laughs> I have been assimilated. Resistance is futile. Yeah, yeah. Um, genetic editing. Um, by the way, if you didn't see it, November's table talk, really, really good on the subject of technology and where it's going and really does a lot to delve into the interaction between the believer and technology. How do we as Christians navigate our lives in what is becoming an increasingly technological environment? And guys, there is there are some that call it the fourth industrial revolution. There is technology changes coming so rapidly and so fast that our head will spin when we see the things that are going to change in our lifetimes. So how do we look at that? Is everything technological, technological as some would say, the mark of the beast? There is, by the way, a, a great article in, in November's Table Talk by 
Burke Parsons on following Christ in a brave new world. I highly recommend that article if you check it out. But there are some scholars, when we talk about the mark of the beast, that believe it's the image imprinted on the coins of the Roman Empire and that Nero was the Antichrist. Lots of scholars believe that. Others argue it refers to a common practice in, in the, uh, the day of the, the seven churches of Asia Minor of marking or stamping, we might call it tattooing or cutting, slaves and soldiers to distinguish who their owner was or who, um, what company they belonged to if they're a soldier. And many of the above things I mentioned, by the way, are beast-like. In other words, technology, as I said, can be used for good or evil. And there is a huge, and this is not conspiracy theory. They say it in their own words, if you're interested in listening to it. The intent behind much of technology is to control. It's to consolidate power. It's not a secret. I would argue as one of your elders, one of the greatest threats to freedom for all of humanity is central bank digital currency. Not because it's the mark of the beast, but because it's intent. And they say it is that it's programmable. And, and with that, with that programmability, we want to be inclusive. So what does that mean? If if you as a church are preaching a message or holding a doctrine that the state doesn't agree with, by the way, this is already the norm in China, then that currency can't be spent there. Jesse, your, your link where we give online, <laughs> done. The point is, is it can, it can absolutely, and it's intended to control where we spend our money and limit where we can spend your money. If you don't have the freedom over your own property, are you free? No. And it's done, by the way, it's done in the name of convenience and safety, as it always is. But it's a violation of a clear biblical ethic for money. What do I mean by that? Well, and you say, Danny, why are you talking about this in, in, a, in a message? Well, I would argue guys, that there's nothing outside of a biblical purview. Proverbs 16, 11 talks directly about money and economics. And it says this, a just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. What does that tell us about money? It tells us that God's design and intent for an economy is a free and just exchange of goods and services. If you say, I'm going to do work for you for $10 an hour, you have an obligation to do $10 worth of work. The person that you're doing the work for has an obligation to pay you at $10. Well, what happens if $10 is not really $10? They're cheating you. It's theft. It's a violation of God's law. We experience that, by the way, in our economy now with with a non-gold-based monetary policy. You see it at the grocery store when you guys go shopping. Inflation. Inflation is, is due um, 
It's expansion and retraction of the money supply. And it's exactly why we struggle with inflation and it impacts our family budget. If our dollars in our culture were backed by hard gold or, or silver, then you could not inflate the money supply. It's wicked, by the way, and it's theft of your property. Just so you know, it's wrong. It's wrong, and very few people understand it. These are vitally important matters, especially when you're at the grocery store. But is this really what our text is talking about? And I will tell you this, no, it's not. Remember, the book of Revelation uses symbolism and pictures to relate and communicate truth. And I'll say this again, I've said it several times, the safest way to explain or understand or interpret the book of Revelation is to do what? Compare. Yes. Compare scripture with scripture. The totality of ownership. Look at verse 16. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand. First of all, the term causes. The original Greek reads this way. It gives us a picture as compulsion under the semblance of choice. In other words, the beast causes the earth dweller through deception. Remember, he's deceiving the earth dweller. The beast causes the earth dweller through deception to want the mark. Now, whenever you talk about the mark of the beast, what is the, the response of anybody that you talk to? What do I do to avoid it? How do I get away from it? Because in, in our culture, it's viewed as something physically or physically applied. Everybody's on the lookout for something that is physically applied, like a technology. But that's not what this is talking about. And I'll show you that. But the, the beast causes the earth dweller through deception to want the mark. Why? Why would somebody want it? It's a stamp of preservation for the earth dweller. Okay? We talked about it this morning. Israel had a choice. And, and with Hezekiah, they, they had a choice. They were surrounded by Sennacherib, the, the Assyrian army, and they were strictly outnumbered. And what was the choice? Come serve us. Live. We'll take care of you. Or stay, stay where you are and die. While the world is looking for some application, physical application of this mark, what they don't realize is they're already willingly owned. The earth dweller is taking refuge in the shadow of the beast. It is his God. I want you to notice that there is no class excluded from the ownership of the beast. It's, it's all inclusive here. Look at it. The scripture says both small and great. Rich and poor, free and slave. If you were to do an anthropological study on social media, what will it tell you about our culture, our world? We're pretty divided, aren't we? You can't get very far on any, any form of social media, whatever your choice might be, without realizing that we're divided up so many different ways. 
Our culture divides itself up by categories such as race, nationality. Some people would say oppressor or oppressed classes, gender, sexual orientation. We even have a new term for it in our culture called intersectionality. That's where all of these different categories of, of defining ourselves come into the one intersection and, and really the one with the greatest victimization status has the greatest voice in our culture. This is what we're told. And this is all a new take on the old class warfare that we've heard for years and years. But it's, a, it's an interesting strategy. You've heard the term divide and conquer, right? What is divide and conquer? It is the policy of maintaining control over one's subordinates or opponents by encouraging dissent between them, thereby preventing them from uniting in opposition. Does the devil ever do this? Say, well, that's out there. That doesn't matter to us. Well, it, it does, because Satan uses this tactic for the church as well. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says to the Corinthian church, Verse one, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still in the flesh. While there is jealousy, listen to this. This is the church. While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul. It, I see this, by the way, I know you guys see it as well, amongst Christians. there's a. I, I saw an argument over whether or not we should be using wine or grape juice for communion. It's like, what won't we fight about? One says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. But we like to have our heroes, don't we? This is my theological hero, and if you say anything against said hero, as we say around here, them is fighting words, and we'll have a Twitter war. And yes, an X war, thank you. <laughs> See, I'm not, I'm not up to speed with technology. So what's the mark? Let's look back to answer that question. Remember that Revelation is a book of contrast and comparisons. Turn, before we look back, look forward just one chapter. Look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. So here is an example of how contrasts are used in the book of Revelation. Chapter 13 ends discussing the mark of the beast. And how does chapter 14 start? Verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name, what? Written on their foreheads. What's going on there? Well, John is contrasting two distinct Marks, the mark that we see in Revelation 14, that's borne by the 144,000. We looked at that in Revelation chapter 7. That is the entirety of the church 
the saints, the people of God, Israel complete. Every one of those saints that stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb has a name, their father's name, written on their forehead. What does that tell us? Should we be tattooing each other on our foreheads and say, I'm a Christian? Is that what, is that what this is teaching? No. It's not a visible mark. It's not visible at all. Why, if, if Scripture is contrasting these two marks, do we automatically then assume that the mark of the beast is something physical that we see? Well, we like to see things, right? We talked about that in Bible study this morning. But let's compare Scripture with Scripture. Turn back to Revelation chapter 7 for just a minute. I want to compare God's mark with Satan's mark. We call it the mark of the beast, but the reality of it is, is who empowers the beast? The dragon. So when we call it the mark of the beast, what we're really calling it is, is the mark of the dragon or the mark of Satan. So how do we compare the two marks? Well, the question that is posed at the end of chapter six is who can stand in the great day of the Lord? In Revelation seven, if you guys remember this, this was about a year ago. But Revelation 7, 1 through 3, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, listen, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice, to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God where on their foreheads. We looked at this in great detail. As we study scripture, the picture here is not a physical mark that is given to the saints to protect them from the blowing wind. The picture of the wind here is spiritual wickedness. But the saints are sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is the stamp of God's ownership and preservation on the believer. What is that? How does God stamp you and preserve you? How does he do that? Holy Spirit. He gives you his Holy Spirit to indwell you. That is the mark of, of the Heavenly Father. It is also a mark of consecration or separation. We saw in Exodus 28, as we, we studied the attire of the priesthood, verse 36 of Exodus 28 says, you shall make a plate. This is talking about Aaron. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. That's what's on the engraving. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban. And it shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. Mm -hmm. It shall regularly be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. Now, if you read up a little bit, it says that he's to bear the breastplate with the 12 tribes on his heart. Why? It's symbolic. But what is it telling us? As Aaron goes to present the sacrifice for the Lord, he is a picture of the great high priest. When Israel is, is engraved on the breastplate on his heart, 
And this text says three times on Aaron's heart, on Aaron's heart, on Aaron's heart. What is he telling us? That when Jesus went to the cross, who did he have on his heart? He had his people on his heart. When we talk about the forehead, what are we talking about? Our thoughts, our mind, our will. And what he's saying is Aaron is given over. He's consecrated wholly to the Lord. And it's symbolized by the turban on his forehead. It's a mark of consecration or separation. We're, we're studying A.W. Pink on sanctification. One of the definitions of sanctification is to be set apart, consecrated. It's also, by the way, a mark of obedience and loyalty. Look at Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is, by the way, a summary of what? The Ten Commandments. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, how do we get God's word on our heart? How do we get the commands on our heart? Mark talked about the passage that in John, if you love me, keep my commandments. You shall teach them, verse 7 of Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And listen to this. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, there are many, and even today, modern Jews who take that and believe it's meant to be interpret, interpreted how? Literally. So if I have God's commandments on my door of my house what does that do for my house does that guarantee that my house is going to obey god's command no no god says they have to be on your heart but the symbolism here if if, if god's word is is his law is a front lip between my eyes it's on my forehead and it's a sign on my hand what is it saying it's going to impact what I think. And when it impacts what I think, what happens? It impacts what I do. For the believer, the one who obeys the commands of God, it is a mark of obedience and loyalty. If you love me, keep my commandments. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know? Well, I said a prayer and I got baptized. No. Do you love him? Do you obey him? It's not to say that we're perfect in our obedience, but the question is, is the, is the direction of my life to obey him? Then it's also a mark of preservation. Look at Ezekiel chapter 9. This is a very interesting passage. Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. This is Ezekiel being given a vision, and it says this, Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city. The city here being spoken about is Jerusalem. God is telling Israel that judgment day is coming. And listen to what he says. God tells 
the executioners to come to the city of Jerusalem, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Verse 2, and behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood besides the bronze altar. Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had put the writing case at his waist. Listen to this. This is a picture. Again, this is imagery to convey truth. He says to the man clothed in linen, Pass through the city, through, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. What is he saying? Before the destroyer goes through Jerusalem and wipes it out because they deserve it. What is he? What is this angel to do? To mark out those, notice what he says, those who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. What makes those people different? They are weary and saddened by the lawlessness of those that are around them. Verse 5, and to the others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. So this mark that is applied to the forehead of the saints is a mark of preservation of judgment. To the believer, Romans 8, 1, what? There is now therefore what? No condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. We could put it this way. To those who have the blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost, there is no condemnation. But to everyone else, the slayer is coming. It is also the mark of promise. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 11. And when I ask the question to start with, what is the mark of God on a believer's life? Paul makes it very clear that it is the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit in our life? Ephesians 1 verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. How do you know, Christian, that God has given you an inheritance? When times are tough and you're buying either gifts or presents, have you ever gone to, I don't know, like a Walmart and done a layaway? I don't even know if they still do that. Yeah. Now everybody just puts it on their credit card if they can't afford it. No layaway needed. If you lay it away, you don't take it home, right? But what's the intent of the layaway? It's a promise that I'm coming back to get it, right? Paul says... Believer, you have obtained an inheritance. You've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were, were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, listen, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Well, if God makes a promise, he is imminently trustworthy. We know this. We know this. But do we always believe it? 
Verse 14, who is, that is the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. We might call it the down payment. We might call it the layaway. Whatever we want to call it, it is the surety that you will acquire what has been promised. How do we know that God's going to keep his promise? And that we have an eternal inheritance. Well, he's given us his spirit. He sealed us with his spirit. So do you see the picture here? I hope this is imminently clear. Satan, the dragon, is replicating the same mark of ownership over his worshipers that God has over his saints. By the way, this is a spiritual act of dominion and bondage that Satan puts on this world, the image bearer of God. Scripture says in, in John chapter four, he was a murderer from the beginning. His intent is to destroy the image of God in humanity. So how do I know that he's trying to imitate God? Look at Ephesians two, verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once you, in which you once walked following the course of the world Following the prince of the power of the air, look at this, the spirit that does what? The spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Do we believe that God is working effectually in our lives to conform us to his image? We believe that. That is sanctification. You know what Satan is doing in his in his children? He is, he is working the word Work there means to work effectually. Satan is effectually at work in the children of disobedience to conform them to what? His image. Do you see the picture? It's just a mirror here. Satan's not original. He's a great counterfeiter. He's at work effectually in the sons of disobedience to conform them to his image, among whom also we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of man. The mark of the beast is merely a counterfeit of the mark of God. So look at look at verse 17. Notice it says, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. Man, this, this one's been really, really conjectured about, and there are tons and tons of people <laughs> that have many, many takes on this passage. No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. You know, we read that and immediately the, the, the thought comes to our mind, man, are we going to starve to death? How will I live? Isn't that what really tends to come to our minds? Say, well, why why are we calling this the totality of worship? Why would I tie worship to economics? Does that really make sense? Well, I'm only doing it because scripture does. Look at Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. The mark of the beast and worship are directly linked together. Revelation 14, verse 9, and another angel a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, 
he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. By the way, do you think that this mark is something that we take accidentally? It's, it's, it's intent here. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead, God's wrath is upon him. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Listen, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is not accidental here. One of the great fears that people have when they read this passage is, am I accidentally going to get the mark of the beast? Have you ever heard people ask, have I ever committed the unpardonable sin? It's, it's really the same question. This is not picturing here from an economic standpoint, a social credit system, although that certainly exists and it is beastly and it is wicked. Go to China right now. What this is demonstrating, though, is the earth dweller is going to the beast. Listen to this. The earth dweller is going to the beast for his sustenance. And you know what God calls it? He calls it worship. Worship is going to anything for your sustenance and your source of life. You see the connection here. Philippians 4.19 says this, And my God will supply all or every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Remember, the second beast is urging the earth dweller, to worship the first beast. What is the first beast? It is the corrupt, disobedient state power, the perverted sword. And the world finds in this beast everything it needs. Cradle to grave. The state will supply all my needs. That's what the earth dweller is saying. In exchange for sanctuary, in exchange for prosperity, in exchange for obedience, loyalty, thanksgiving, and worship, the state will give everything you need, all the prosperity you could want. And oh, by the way, it will bring you into subservience and bondage. So what about the church? The scripture makes a very clear delineation. It is the unbeliever that has the mark of the beast on them. The Christian can't accidentally get the mark of the beast it is a spiritual mark that spiritual mark certainly has practical application who am i worshiping so what about the church where is the church in all of this we'll turn back to revelation chapter 12 will we starve will we be excluded from the economic system well that was the question that encountered hezekiah and the men on the wall as they were surrounded by Assyria. At which point we're to come to the conclusion that we are not to lean on our own understanding. The beast speaks great swelling words against the Most High God. He will tell you, you're outnumbered. You can't possibly win. 
the followers of the beast say, who is like the beast? Who can beat him? Who can defeat him? It's not to say that Christians are going to have it easy because we don't. Look what John said to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2.9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are, are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. It is not to say that Christians will be prosperous. There is no promise in God's word of prosperity in this life. Much to the dismay of many Christians who are seeking that. But what happens to the church? Well, we've already been told, look at Revelation chapter 12. While the world is going to the beast for its sustenance, for its shelter, to meet and supply its every need, what is happening to the church? Revelation 12, verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. Who was the woman? This was only a couple chapters ago, guys. Thank you. The woman is the church. With the moon under, with, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, which is who? Satan, thank you. Are you guys awake? The great red dragon is Satan with seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So that when she bore her child, who's the child? Yes. When she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. What happens to the woman? What happens to the church? Look at verse 6. While the world is going to the beast for its sustenance, to meet and supply its every want, its every need, what is happening to the church? The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by who? By God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Who supplies her needs? This is really a great temptation, though, isn't it? See, the enemy will, will shout at the wall and tell us that we don't have any hope. There's no chance you survive. There's no chance you get through this. You're outnumbered. Bend the knee. Bend the knee. It's all you have to do. When you hear the music play, all you have to do is bow down. Just go with the crowd. Don't rock the boat, and you'll be taken care of. But it's a lie, isn't it? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, I want to encourage you with this, as you might face need in your life, as you might chase or face financial challenge in your life. Our pursuit, what we chase in this life, what drives us is our worship. We find our sustenance in what we worship. How do I know that? Well. 
Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And what are we normally anxious about? How am I going to be sustained? Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Think about that statement. Your worrying, your anxiety, and, and we all have it, don't we? What if I lose my job? What if I have to stand up? And we talked about there are some times where, where we don't answer a word and there are other times when we have to speak up. What if I speak up and I lose my job? How am I going to take care of my family? Have you ever thought that? I have. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, neither toil or spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, verse 31, do not be anxious, saying, what shall I eat? Or what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? How will I be sustained? Listen, look at what he says in, at the end of verse 30, or excuse me, verse 32. For the Gentiles, what? Seek after these things. The pursuit of their life is their sustenance. And where do they go? Jesus says this when he goes just a little further. Your heavenly father knows that you need all of this. But seek first, what? The kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying? The pursuit of our life is our worship. The world, the Gentile or the unbeliever is pursuing in worship all of the things that they can amass to take care of themselves with, their sustenance. But you, believers, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus says in Mark 8, 36, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? We can have wealth untold and we'll die and not take a bit of it with us. But the promise of the beast is security, prosperity, no lack, no need. And the scripture says the just live how? By faith. The just are to live by faith. In other words, we trust God to take care of us. Point six, and lastly, I'm finishing up, I promise. The application of wisdom regarding the beast. Verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And this is where many people will delve into numerology. 
There is a, a study of numerology called gamatria, and it's assigning numeric values to words. And so the thought process with this verse is this is a code. This is a riddle that God has given us to like a Rubik's Cube. Every, anybody know what a Rubik's Cube is? Mark, you do, because you're a child of the 80s like me. <laughs> I hated Rubik's Cubes. I could never, I could never solve it. It was a never under, never ending twisting and turning. A riddle that I never solved. And then you watch these people that can do it in like eight moves. And it's what I did was I peeled the stickers off and just put them where I wanted to. But but this is we look at this as some mystery to be solved, some code to be broken. And I think we missed the point. I want you to see there are just a couple of observations about this. And, and again, there you guys can go read tons of commentators who all have a take on this. But I, I, I maintain that the safest way to understand this is to compare Scripture with Scripture. Revelation 15, 2. The mark of the beast is almost always assigned, or the number of the beast is almost always assigned to the false prophet, right? The Antichrist. That's not what Revelation does here, though. Look at Revelation 15, 2. I want you to see that Revelation itself applies the number of the beast, not to the second beast, who is the false prophet, or what we call the Antichrist, or Paul calls the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians. But look at Revelation 15, 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the lamb. You see what it says there? Who is the image made to? The image is made to the first beast. And so Revelation 15, 2 automatically clears up something very significant for us. We think of the mark of the beast, they're the number 666, and, and people are doing contortions over, well, is it Nero? You can take Gematria and apply it to almost anybody that you want. That's the funny thing about that. And people have, commentators have, every day or every generation takes that number and tries to twist it and apply it to a different character in history. But what is it saying? What is the number six here? Now it's repeated three times. But what is the number six? Scripture tells us right here is the number of man. What are the beasts? Of what are the beasts comprised? The creature. Man. Here is wisdom. The worship of the beast is the worship of man. It's the worship of me. The great idol, the great image is worship of me. The image of the idol is of humanity's own creation. So what do we make of the, the number repeated of six, three times? Six is the number of a man. What is not six? Six comes up just a little bit short when you compare it to seven, doesn't it? 
Seven, the number seven is used in the book of Revelation 54 times. In almost every example of the, the number seven utilized in scripture, it talks about what? Perfection or completion. Okay. When we see the repeat of the same number, six, what's one problem? The, the math ain't mathing. It comes up just a little bit short, doesn't it? What is it telling us here? The kingdoms of this world, the beasts of this world will come up short every time. They do not make an adequate God for us to worship. <clears throat> the kingdom of man will always fall short of its ambitions. There is no utopia. And man, they're looking for it, aren't they? They've tried. Every communist regime has promised its people. We're on a five-year plan, guys. Yes, there will be millions of you that have to die to pave the way to utopia, but we'll get there. Never happened. The kingdoms of man, the self-made images of man, the gods of man always, always fall short. How do we know that? Well, look at Genesis chapter 11. You don't have to turn there, but you know it well. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make what? A name for ourselves. Lest we dis be dispersed all over the face of the earth. Did that little science project ever get finished? No. What happened? God scattered them. He confused her language. That's why it's called Babel. Babel was never finished, was it? The beasts in this passage, and be encouraged with this. We we have we have such a buildup of this passage, and we think, oh, the beast, the beast, the beast. The beast falls short. It can't do everything it wants to do. It will fall short of its desired goal. Yes, it will have a worshiping world to fawn all over it. But look at the end of the beast, Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings and those with him are called chosen and faithful. People have this grandiose idea of Armageddon where the entire world gathers to make war with God. That's the most anticlimactic war ever recorded in scripture. Think of the idiocy of that. How, how crazy it is to think that anyone can fight against God and win. And yet, we have such fear, don't we? That's really the temptation for us, isn't it? The walls are surrounded. We're outnumbered. By the way, in a couple of chapters, there's, I think, 160,000 Assyrians that die in their sleep that night because the angel of the Lord takes them out. The, the beast, the enemy of the church is nothing, nothing. We have to be careful that we do not fear what cannot defeat us. So the question that, that we have to ask this morning is, how do I know what seal I have? To whom do I belong? How do I know that? How do I answer that question? You say, what? Well, 
I'm not really in either camp. I'll be spiritual Switzerland. And what does Jesus say? He that is not with me, there is no middle ground. You are either in the camp of the Savior or you're in the camp of the beast. So how do we know? Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 8, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I want to give you just as closing application this morning, some thoughts for you to ponder. How do you know you're saved? How do you know that the spirit of God has sealed you for all of eternity? Here are some things to, to consider quickly. Have you been made a new creation? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become, have become new. Jesus told Nicodemus, the only way to either see or enter the kingdom is what? You must be born again. The question for us this morning is, have we been born again in the spirit of God? If we do, we have his seal. The second thing I would ask you is, do you believe the gospel? Not do you believe a gospel, but do you believe the gospel? That salvation is through Christ alone. Is your hope in God or your own performance? Romans 15, 13, are you holding it all together? If you are holding it all together and your salvation rests in your goodness and your ability to maintain, it's cause for concern. Here's a big one. Are you submitted to his word? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Are we obedient to his word? Fifth, have you lost your love for this world? You know, this one takes time sometimes in the life of the believer. We have such grandiose hopes, dreams, and plans. And this place has a tight grip on us sometimes. But as we get more and more insight into the truth of God's word, our love for this place begins to fade away and drift away. I remember Nicole's grandfather when he was just about to leave this world. She asked him, I, it was either her or me talking to him, 80 years, happy, joyous man, filled with joy, loved being around him. He was just a pleasure to be around because the joy of the Lord filled him. I remember asking, would you do it all over again if you could? He said, you know what? I love my wife. I love my family. But there's not a chance I would do this all again because I am this close to being with my Savior. His love for the world faded as he got closer to Christ. Do you have a new or changed relationship to sin? You hate sin in your own life. We're good at hating it in others' lives, aren't we? But do you have a new, changed relationship to sin? Do you have, as my father used to say, has God given you a new wanter? And then lastly, do you love the brethren? Is it a burden for you to be here this morning? You're like, man, 
got to go to church again. My mom and dad are making me. Wish I could do this. That's not fun. It's boring. It's fill in the blank. We've all been there, haven't we? Why do we come here? Jesus said, if you love me, what? Love the brethren. We're not very lovable sometimes. Sometimes we are hard to love. Amen. Yes. <laughs> but if we love him, it's demonstrated in how we love each other. Is the is do you find it important to edify each other? Do you find it important to pray for each other? Do you find it important at all to encourage each other in the faith, to advance in the faith? Do we want to see each other's spiritual growth and well-being? If you can answer yes to all of that, then it's fair to say, yes, I love God's children. There's no place I'd rather be this morning. None. Give me tickets to the Eagles 49ers game. I'd rather be here. Big game. But, you know, you guys know what I'm saying. There's no better place to be than in the Lord's house with his people. Why? Because I love you guys. I belong with you. How do we know we have the sealing of the Holy Spirit? Those are the proofs. Those are the evidences. And if none of these things are evident in your life, call out to God. Repent. Ask him to give you life. Cast yourself upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for helping us work through these things. Thank you for helping us see and understand that the, the great challenge of our day is who we worship, who we belong to, who owns us, where we will go when things are difficult, where we run to for shelter. Father, I pray that you would identify in our lives the idols that need to be torn down. Grant us grace to see those things destroyed and dethroned in our lives, that you alone would be our God. That there would be nothing else that, that competes for your worship. I pray, Lord, that as we come to your table this morning, you would prepare our hearts. We thank you and praise you for all that you've done. Thank you for saving us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.